Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host, and if you've arrived here, there must be a reason. I'm guessing you're curious to learn more about improving your wellbeing alongside ADHD, or maybe looking for some advice or guidance to feel healthier and calmer. So, why start this podcast? I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and I discovered my own ADHD alongside one of my daughters at the age of 40. And now, after supporting many other women just like me, and probably you, I feel there's a need for more emphasis on well-being and lifestyle help for women with ADHD. And through the podcast, I want to offer you new insights and perspectives to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and balanced life. So wherever you are on your ADHD journey, my aim is to support you in finding the awareness and the most aligned tools to enhance your well-being so you can make the most intentional mindset and lifestyle choices moving forwards. Ready to get started? Here's the episode. So hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. And my guest today is someone that I've been looking forward to speaking to for quite a long time. I think we connected a while ago. We've got quite similar ADHD diagnosis sort of journeys and stories, but so many other differences as well that I'm just really excited to talk about. So we've got Jamie Frageau, and you may have seen her on social media. She is under the handle, the Neurodivergent Nurse, and she is a registered nurse. And she was diagnosed at the age of 36 back in December 2020. And she now has a brilliant podcast called the Neurodivergent Nurse Podcast. And if you follow her on social media, you'll see that she just chronicles her journey with ADHD and um, helps other people navigate through their own journeys. And so she just kind of portrays the messiness, the rawness of what she's learning on the way and sharing it. And um, I think you're doing a fantastic job, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And what a sweet and wonderful intro. I really appreciate it. And I just want to say I'm so honored to have received the invitation to be on your podcast. Oh, well, you know what? I think when we start on these journeys, diagnoses, whatever you want to call them, that we definitely start following different accounts. And yours was one of those accounts that sort of just like came up, um, you know, quite a while ago. And it was just, I think it was definitely before I was educated to understand that everyone, you can be ADHD and have any job, do anything, any industry, and that's not going to stop you. But I just think for me, I was just so curious about nursing because for me, that is like, that's focus, that's concentration, that's detail, that's other people's lives that you've got to, you know, be constantly monitoring. And so I, I think my heart went out to you because to, to find out that you have ADHD, to become a registered nurse is, is quite a big thing. And then to know that you've had these challenges all your life to get to where you have got to, I think I wanted to kind of give you a bit of a high five and congratulate yeah, well, you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It was definitely not an easy thing because I was not diagnosed when I went to nursing school. So the difficulties that I had becoming a nurse was, I felt like it was at an exponential rate. I would look around at my classmates and I, I didn't know why I wasn't smart enough to understand the things that they were understanding. 
why I couldn't grasp the concepts so easily that they were grasping. And it just made me feel like I wasn't good enough. Maybe I wasn't smart enough or cut out for it, or my desire just didn't match my ability. And it was, it was a difficult thing, but you know, here I am. And I'm thankful that I went through it undiagnosed because there are so many people with ADHD that they're not in this day and time. They can't get in to see a provider. They really believe that they do have ADHD and they have those same feelings and emotions that maybe they're just not good enough. And because I didn't have that diagnosis, then I have the ways of encouragement saying, if you stick to it, you do have this ability and it's a beautiful, beautiful light at the end of that tunnel. Mm, I know what you're saying. I mean, sometimes ignorance is bliss, but then at the same time, you know, you were, ch- you were being challenged by, I guess, some, you know, the memory retention of like trying to remember and absorb everything and also like comprehend it all because, you know, anything medical for me just goes straight over my head. I mean, I watch Grey's Anatomy and I'm just like, oh my God, like how do they even remember anything? (laughs) So you had that, but I do wonder, did that knock your confidence and your self-esteem as you were um, going through the ranks and you were seeing people, you know, maybe doing things quicker or faster or picking things up? Like, how did that affect your your confidence? Boy, did it, <laughs> did it knock my confidence. In the United States, we have two different programs, three technically, but you have an associate's degree, which is a quote, two-year degree. You still have to do a year or two of prereqs, but it's a five-semester program once you are in the nursing program. And you also have a bachelor's degree, which is a four-year degree. The difference between the two truly is your, the associate's degree is very concentrated. It's very, you get the meat and potatoes. We take the exact same exam. I took the same nursing exam to become a registered nurse, my boards as the people at Harvard. So they throw a whole lot on you and they expect you to be able to be successful with two years less education than the other people at, at the university. I went the associate's degree route, which was so much harder because I don't have a background in medicine. I didn't have sick family members. I remember when they were talking about a tourniquet, which is kind of the rubber band that you put around someone's arm before you draw blood. And they mentioned tourniquet in class. I kid you not. I thought that it was like the shield that you put on to go into war. I had no (laughs) idea what they were talking about. And it was so difficult for me. My confidence was so low that I ended up withdrawing my second semester of nursing school and taking a year off because I was passing technically, but I didn't think that I would be able to make high enough on my final exams in order to successfully pass that semester. And I remember going in to withdraw passing. My clinical instructor told me, I'm so sorry. I know this is hard for you, but we just can't teach people to clinically think. Okay. Um, And she's like, critical thinking is another thing that you just have to have and you just don't have it. So I'm like, okay, I'm done. I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I have no idea what it's going to be. But I took a year off and I went back and passed and graduated. And then I passed NCLEX on my first try also a very big confidence booster. But I remember my first job when I got into the hospital, I wanted to be an ICU nurse because 
I decided that I wanted to have a job that would require one year of ICU. So that was my end goal was ICU. And we had to do three months of general med surge where you have like six patients. They're not critically ill and you take care of them. And you're, you're just kind of learning about how the body system works. Had three months of that. It was overwhelming to say the least. Then I go back to the ICU and maybe two weeks in, the manager told me, you make a great med surge nurse, but you just don't have what it takes to be an ICU nurse. And so then again, right? I mean, it's less than a year <laughs> since I graduated, two years since I had the nursing professor tell me the same thing. And it was just, I feel like it was blow after blow after blow, but it wasn't really because I wasn't intelligent enough, but I think that people perceive me that way because I was very cautious. I wanted to ask all the questions that I already knew the answers to, especially in the clinical setting, because I needed to have absolute certainty that what I was going to do, the action that I was going to take was going to benefit, not harm a patient. And it was just easy to perceive that as me not comprehending things or not really um, having that confidence, but my confidence was in not killing someone. But after that, I went on to work. I don't know if this is why, but I went on to work at six of the top uh, 50 hospitals in the country in neuro ICU. I've worked at Johns Hopkins. I worked at Yale, Massachusetts General, all in their neuro ICU at Duke. But it's just kind of, I wish that I could throw it back on the manager, on the professors and say, look, you were wrong. You were wrong. So you got to work and do the ICU that you wanted to. Oh, yeah. And you're doing it in neuro, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yep. Neuro Amazing. ICU with brain injuries. Wow. and mm-hmm. Wow. So what I was hearing before when you were just talking that you were asking lots of questions, and I can really resonate with this, is I... I now understand it's to do with trust, trusting ourselves. And there's a lot of self-doubt and we're just constantly there, like doubting ourselves. Do we hear that right? Have we absorbed it right? Am I understanding it like everyone else? You know, did I take that literally? Is that so many things that I, the amount of courses that I've done, and it's always me with my hand up asking and just double checking. And I had this I did an NLP practitioner course and it was neuro-linguistic. It's like a part of the coaching. It was quite like lots of it. You don't take it figuratively, but so much of it, I was like, can I just check this? Can I just check that? And no one else was putting their hand up, but it's, I've now realized that it's just because I, I don't think I trusted myself that I was absorbing it in the way that was the correct way to absorb and it's interesting, isn't it, that I, when I speak to other women now, it's quite a common thread that this self-trust, because it must have come from when we were kids in class, maybe teachers saying things to us, especially, you know, what you experience with people putting you down and telling you that you you weren't worthy of being an ICU nurse or working in um, intense situations. And it kind of just it's layer after layer, isn't it? And so the fact that you've got to where you've got to now, how do you now disregard that voice of self-doubt and lean into the trust more? That's a great question. And I'm trying to formulate it in a way that doesn't give me uh, an appearance of pseudo confidence. But 
I now work in a role as a rapid response nurse. I never thought that I would love any job more than being a neuro ICU nurse. I love the, the patient population, the love that surrounds brain injuries. And it's just, oh, my heart, my heart are those people. But I got into rapid response and was a complete fish out of water because now we're dealing with people who are having chest pain. Is it a heart attack? I don't know. You don't have the doctor there, but we have to figure out what to implement, figure it out. If this is a true emergency, if it's not just all of these crazy things, but I was, I was the stroke girl that was on the team and there's a maximum of two of us at one time, but I was the one that people were relieved if they were working with me because neuro was no one's strong suit. Everyone is afraid of the brain. Everyone's afraid of a brain injury. And I think that that really helped give me a lot of confidence in seeing how relieved people were to have my experience with them. Also, because I couldn't just work in a neuro ICU, I was charged nurse at the first neuro ICU I ever worked in that was ranked 47th in the country at that time for neurology and neurosurgery. That wasn't good enough for me, right? Like I needed to go and work at the top hospitals in the country and going to all of those places. And I, I definitely felt like an imposter, right? Fake it till you make it. But being able to bring back the information that I learned through those years at all of these different places, seeing these incredible things that just really stick with you, it certainly helps give you the confidence that that is needed whenever you speak and whenever you stand up for a patient for something that could be wrong. But then just to have the other people that you work with believe in you too, truly, truly believe in you, it feels like night and day difference between any job I've ever had. But I, I think it's just that culmination of all of that together. Yeah. And when you were talking about being rapid response, and I'm just my straight away with my thought process went to like, my nervous system. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I think we are great in an emergency. And that is why there's a lot of people that work in the emergency services with ADHD, because we thrive. I mean, I say we because I, I don't work in that. I don't think I could handle it. But, you know, people with ADHD seem to thrive off very high adrenaline situations. But then we dip quite quickly, the burnout, the overwhelm, and it takes us longer maybe to recover or perhaps we're in that situation, this sort of fight or flight response for such a long time that that's when the burnout happens and we sort of just need to like hide away for a few days. How does that affect you when you're in those very intense situations where you do need to decompress afterwards? In my job in the rapid response, if someone is, let's say their heart stops beating, right? We have a code blue. I love our brains. I love my ADHD brain because it turns into this cascade of information. While everyone else is running around like crazy, they're losing their mind. You can look at some nurses. They look like they're about to pass out over the fear. They're shaking. Everything becomes so clear. And Sure, there are definitely days where I need to decompress. But in this role, once we revive a patient, we bring them back to life, we get them to an ICU where they can be cared for, we oftentimes will have downtime, maybe for 30 minutes, maybe for an hour, until the next emergency happens inside of the hospital. So it's, it's nice to have that ebb and flow because you never know what's coming. We do have time, whereas as a bedside nurse, when I worked in neuro ICU, 
I'm literally with two patients for 12 hours. And if someone codes or dies, you're there with that family. Even if you get them back, the family's hurting, the family's scared, the family's mourning. And I am an emotional sponge, like a lot of people with ADHD. So when this fear and this sadness is all around me at a, at such a high rate, the heaviness just, I can't get out of it. And there would be days that I couldn't get out of bed for a day or two uh, after I would get out of work just because it was so emotionally trying, even if there were good outcomes. I mean, you still have injury to a person, right? You still have someone who may never walk again. You still, you still see the pain that someone experienced, even if it was only for 30 minutes. Tough, tough thing. Thankfully, rapid response is a lot easier emotionally because I get to move away once the job is done. For my part, my role in the recovery, then I get to remove myself. I don't I don't have to deal with the family and that sounds really, really terrible, but I don't have to cry with a family. And oftentimes I would cry more than a family. Sometimes it was just so bad, but it's, there's a barrier that has given me some protection that while my heart breaks, it doesn't break to the same extent that it used to. So I, I don't have to have days that I don't get out of bed. Occasionally it happens, but it's far less than what it used to be. Yeah. And you mentioned then about being like emotional sponges. And very often we are, you know, highly sensitive people. And I feel it. I mean, I know that I can totally, someone's energy is like, I absorb it straight away. But to be in that situation where you are amongst hopefully lots of happiness, you save people's lives and people walk out the hospital and you've got good happiness that you can absorb, but also, you know, those very trying and dark days where you have to be able to just keep going. And for when you're sensitive like that, that must have been very hard. And how did you look after your mental health and your mental well-being when you were in those darker moments, especially if you're absorbing so much energy? So really another really, really great question because during this time I was undiagnosed as well. So I wasn't on medication. I take medication now that I think it helps a bit with my mood. It helps with my social anxiety and all of that. So I had none of that. I didn't know the tips and tricks and the ways that our brains respond to trauma in a sense. I was a runner. I would go out and I would run all the time. I ended up being an ultra marathon runner. <laughs> I ran 42 miles in a race once, oh but God. that would, yeah, but I would deal with just such sadness and it was overwhelming. And I couldn't understand why this 26 year old with a small child at home would have a brain cancer that would kill them in six or nine months. And they were just the most beautiful souls that I would get to know them and their families and just love them. And, and it was all mutual. And those are the times where all I could do was I worked night shift at the time, but I would throw on my shoes at two o'clock in the morning and I would just go out and run maybe 13 miles. And it was quiet. There were no people out there. The world was dark and it was just, there was something spiritual about it where I got to pray 
I was able to feel one with the world again. And also there's something that happens too, that when your body hurts, I mean, that's, it's a, a response for a lot of people when they're in emotional pain. That's why some people, you know, they do self-mutilation, unfortunately, but it gives some type of release. But still, like when you go out and run 13 miles, it's not comfortable. <laughs> your, your legs are feeling uncomfortable, right? Or your lungs feel a certain way. I just that was my way to feel better. And then after however many miles, however many hours, I would come home and I would have clarity again. And I would be ready to go back to work the next day or whenever was my next shift. Yeah. And that makes so much sense, isn't it? I mean, to not have a release. And that sounds like an amazing release to run it in the dark of night, especially after a shift like that, just to process. I think, you know, very often if if we're not processing it, the trauma will just stay within us. And if you're seeing that every day, like you say, you know, you're, you're meeting families and you are making connections and creating relationships, but also you're getting this like huge perspective on life every day. This isn't just like, what shall I have for dinner? Right. Kind of conundrums. This is, you know, like you said, seeing good people with young families die and not being able to make sense of that. So I don't know. I'm trying to think in my head what I would do if I was in your shoes. I don't know. I, I think now I, I wonder if I would have the resilience, the mental resilience um, to deal with it. Sometimes I, I know if I've had um, a client and we've gone through some heavy stuff it takes me a while I can't really sometimes I'll have to just go for a walk I know that if I go straight to my kids I know that the energy hasn't released type thing so I know that it's better for me to go and have a walk get some fresh air process it again I'm the same it's for me it's very spiritual there's lots of like gratitude especially if you know this client's had a tough time huge amounts of gratitude and praying and praying for myself my family but I think if you know anyone listening right now that doesn't know how to to release it's a hard place to be so you may have heard that I did a workshop about managing your nervous system with ADHD a few weeks ago. I was so happy to see quite a lot of you sign up and be there live. But the workshop is now available to buy. It's on my website for £33. And I really wanted to share everything I knew about ADHD and the nervous system. And this started from me noticing my own nervous system, noticing how much of an impact it had and understanding the correlation between our nervous system and ADHD. And so this is a 75 minute workshop where I talk about the correlation of our nervous system to ADHD. I touch on the polyvagal theory and why understanding the vagus nerve is crucial to helping our ADHD and really dive into the understanding of why do our many ADHD traits such as RSD, procrastination, low dopamine, anxiety, hypervigilance have such an impact on our sensitive nervous systems and how we can empower ourselves with intentional daily choices. And I also talk about the practical, the mindset and the spiritual tools and coaching strategies to regulate and calm our nervous systems to feel 
a better version, more grounded version of ourselves on a daily basis. And I touch on lots more, but I really believe that understanding this connection between our very highly sensitive nervous systems and our ADHD can be groundbreaking in having a calmer, more balanced daily life. So head to my website, it's coachingbykate.me.uk. You'll find it on the tools and resources area and it's £33 and I really hope that it helps you understand your nervous system and helps you find different ways and different strategies to access more calm and more opportunities to notice your nervous system and be aware of how you are able to calm it. Would you think that in the nursing industry, ADHD or not, there is a problem with mental health? Or are you learning and training to be able to have some form of um, emotional release? (laughs) Especially with the pandemic, when that started, a lot of people struggled mentally, a lot of nurses, doctors, and they made it, my hospital in particular, they made it where you could do online therapy for free, which is great. And they've always taught us about burnout But I don't feel that we are really and truly given the right tools. Looking, clicking through a a module of a minute and a half is not going to help me get to the bottom of how to deal with the emotional trauma that I am struggling with and that all the other people are struggling with. And that causes such disconnect with many healthcare providers many nurses, they become very angry. They become very mean. They don't have that emotional side. They do a good job. They help someone survive, but it's lacking that, that true deep connection to the person that you're taking care of. Because after you get hurt so many times, you know, you stick your hand on a hot plate, you don't want to stick your hand on a plate anymore. And you can't blame them for that. But then on the other hand, patients really struggle and the family struggle, whether they know that that's the, the catalyst for it or not. It's just a broken system. It, it really is. But I'm not able to disconnect myself from patients. And from the beginning, when I was a nurse, people would tell me, oh, how long have you been a nurse? Oh, give it a year. You won't be like this anymore. Or, OK, give it five years. You're not going to cry all the time like you do now. I still do. I still do. And I'm over 10 years in. So it's just, you know, who we are. And I, I would never want to truly get rid of the tender heart that I have for people just to make myself feel better because they deserve that too. You know, if it was my dad who passed away, I would be so grateful that the nurse was crying with me, that she was mourning, that the, the world lost a beautiful soul. Mm-hmm. And Instead of just, you know, pat me on the back, it's okay, Jamie, you'll be better. I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine not being that person, you know, that would be in the trenches of their emotions with them. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine anyone who wants to be a nurse is not, hasn't got empathy, is not doing it because they want to be, you know, to be there to help and to heal. And I think with ADHD is that we do have huge amounts of empathy, don't we? And that is so much sometimes slightly to our detriment because like you say that we're the ones that are crying we're the ones that are feeling is as hard as you know as the families and 
there has to be a level of being able to protect ourselves for our mm-hmm. own well-being so we can look after ourselves and I know that that's this constant ebb and flow for myself as well but over the years I've recognized that if I don't put my own armor on before like I go out to battle then it's backfires kind of quite badly because I've got a family and I want to work and I want to see my clients and so I've started kind of going from you know backwards and going right I need to look after myself first so I can look after all the people that I love around me and then I can do my work and like see my clients and try and make a difference with what I'm trying to do but I used to think it was selfish prioritizing me and now I realize that it's actually just really sensible (laughs) and if I can't prioritize myself then all the people that I want to be helping and all the contributions that I want to make is just fruitless Mm -hmm. so I guess I mean like it just kind of makes sense if you go into medical training that that should be probably one of the first points of you know ports of call that they are taught especially as doctors and you're working night shifts and nurses and anyone that's doing these like long hours and throwing themselves into a profession it feels like it's almost like common sense to be able to say, right, protect yourselves. Healthcare, at least in the United States, I don't know in depth how it is in other places, but we don't truly care enough about mental health, period. As a baseline, we do not put enough stock in mental health. And the brain is an organ just like your heart. If your heart's not beating well, we get medication, you go to cardiac rehab. We have people who train you to do that, and and that's part of your recovery. We just don't care the same way about if you suffer from depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, any of the other things that we have modalities that can help. It, It can make things easier and lift the burden a bit. And nurses are just like neurotypicals, right? I mean, There's such a variety of mental issues that we all have, whether it's ADHD, whether it's schizophrenia, whatever it is, but we just don't have that protection from our employers, from our healthcare system to make sure that we stay safe too, so that we can continue to provide the best care for the people who come in and need the the best of us. Yeah. And tell me, what's it like? um, Is there... Are there nurses that you've come across with ADHD? Like, how have you managed to come together? How are they responding to your ADHD in the nursing industry? I don't think that there are a lot of nurses that are outspoken like I am about having ADHD. There are definitely people that I know and I can see at work. I'm like, oh, yeah, that person has ADHD too. Okay. Um, and there's there's a creator, a podcast, or that I met who is a nurse and I did a nurses podcast conference in Nashville uh, at the end of last year in November. And he wanted me on a show to talk about ADHD as well. Well, he has ADHD, but he doesn't want anybody to know it. And I do feel like that is very common. I don't have the same feeling because I think just like any other issue, we're afraid of the things that we don't know, right? And racial tensions are high in the United States, for example. But the more that we sweep things under the rug and not talk about why 
people of color feel the way they do, how these things are negatively impacting people of color, the more that we say, you just keep that over there and I don't want to hear anything about it, things aren't going to change. So bringing that back to mental health, the more that we are ashamed and that we don't loudly and boldly talk about the difficulties, the beauties, and all of the possibilities that are there for us, then other people are going to continue to feel like it's a scarlet letter for them because of something that they can't control. So yeah, I I know deep down a lot of people that I work with have ADHD, but no one really talks about it. And you can tell because I do talk about it. I talk about the podcast and stuff that some people, they don't quite believe it because women present very differently than um, men and even boys because their idea is the six-year-old who's not sitting still in a a seat and they're not good at school and they're thinking, well, Jamie's a pretty intelligent person and she's fun, but she can you know sit down and do her work. So she probably doesn't really have it. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah, I see that I see and I speak to a lot of people who that the stigma and the shame is there. And then they're challenged. So even if they kind of feel like they're going to speak out and talk about it, they get that they are challenged. Well, you don't you're successful, you know, look at you, you've managed to hold down a career. And that immediately puts you on the defense. And you and it's like, okay, like you kind of bristle because you think that person's not going to really understand unless and then you know there's only so much educating you can do for people who just maybe don't want to know like you said at the beginning you know this wait for assessment and diagnosis is so long and it can be so painful and excruciating for women who finally like the penny has dropped something's twigged and they think okay I think it's ADHD but until they get that official diagnosis from the psychiatrist it's still not quite real so mm-hmm. they're still kind of like well it's my fault or I'm the one to blame or it's you know I should be trying harder or I, I should be doing better and that can go on for several years but you know what you're doing especially in the, in the nursing industry in the medical industry of shining a light on just because there's you know neurodivergences doesn't mean that we're not doing our job as well. I actually think sometimes the ADHD enhances what we do and you're describing this level of empathy and care for patients and maybe the emotions may kind of present physically but you probably are doing different things that someone else without ADHD is doing and noticing and recognizing and seeing and you know how we can see like big pictures and we can put things together and I just think that this is just people need a lot more educating to recognize that it's everywhere. It's in all walks of life. And it's funny how you say that you can see it because I'm the same. You can see it from a mile away, can't you? And, And some people just have no clue. And I wish that people going back to what you were talking about with the people feeling that, oh, well, I'm not sure if I have it or not. I always, because there There are individuals that make others feel that they are not valid if they don't have a diagnosis. And that's one thing that I also really try to push. If you follow my podcast and you learned about time blindness and you thought, holy cow, these these ways that I can deal with getting to appointments or actually getting up and doing something because we either live in now or not now, I never realized that was a thing. 
If those work for you, whether you have a diagnosis or not, it doesn't matter. You are not any less valid for your struggles. You have no less valid for the difficult things that you go through or just the way that that you can find mechanisms that benefit your brain the most. And so even if you don't get the diagnosis, if you go to a psychiatrist and they say, nope, you don't have ADHD, but you still find that this ADHD community fits you, then be in that community. Then that community is for you. You don't need a label, which it does help. I I agree with that because all of a sudden I'm like, oh, so I'm not a slob. It's not me. I'm not this person that I always told myself that it was. So I I do understand the beauty of actually having someone saying, no, it's it's your brain, not you as an individual. But you're welcome in that whether you have that stamp or you don't have that stamp is just as valid. How did you feel when you had your diagnosis? Well, and I guess what led to the diagnosis? I had a friend who very gently asked me if I had ever uh, seen anyone about ADHD. And I was like, no, 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 no. I had no idea what ADHD really was. I especially didn't know what it was like in women. And I had the same misconception that a lot of other people do that, oh, this is what ADHD presents as. Okay. And she mentioned it to me and she said, I really think that you should probably look into it because I have so much social anxiety. It's much better now, but I have very high rejection sensitivity. My social anxiety was just out of control. Even in my mid-20s, I remember I couldn't look in a mirror without crying. I hated to see me. I would have panic attacks at the thought of having to walk into a place without someone with me, thinking that people were going to turn and look at me. And then just the other tendencies that she noticed as being a close friend of mine, it threw a little red flag up to her. And she started sending me videos. She started sending me research papers. And as I was reading through it, I was thinking, holy cow, that does sound like me to a T. So then I, I went through and I got signed up to go see someone, took a lot of tests. And when I was diagnosed, I was literally crying in the office with a psychiatrist when she started telling me, you do have ADHD. I'm like, okay. And she said, and I bet this is how you feel in this situation. I bet this is how you feel in this situation. And this is, I had tears coming down my face and I don't ever cry over me. And I was like, I look like such a loser. I was so ashamed. But the relief that I felt knowing that that these struggles that I had, it wasn't just because I wasn't good at something. It wasn't because I, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't tidy enough. I don't know. It was, it was incredible. And then it just helped push me in directions to find better ways to manage what I now know was the true struggle of my brain. Yeah. And that's what is amazing about it. And again, I know we were saying that you don't have to have this diagnosis. And I do think though, in that capacity, it does help because it's the validation of I am not all the things I've been telling myself all these years. And then it kickstarts you to um, look for help. You know, if it's the time blindness, if it's organization, if it's the social anxiety, you know, the, the things. All the above. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like some things like really affect people, you know, more than other things. 
and there's certain parts of me that I'm just like, accept. It's like, okay, I'm probably never going to be like super organized. I'm never going to have drawers that are all like perfectly like lined up with everything. You know, maybe I'd have it for like a month and then it would just go back. So, and, and I've recognized that, you know what, there's worse things in life. But then there were other things that I was like, you know what, I really want to help myself with this because I'm I'm sick of it and I don't want this to dictate my life anymore. So to know that this was not a character flaw and it was part of the ADHD that we can work with and we can kind of, you know, try and flex that muscle a little bit more. And that's, again, that's why I work with my clients over that they come to me and they're like, but now what? I've got this diagnosis and X, Y, and Z has always been, you know, problem. And so it's just getting to that point of, okay, this self-acceptance of just going, okay, this is where I am right now. And just having that level of self-acceptance is incredibly freeing. It is. And I even took it a little bit further. When I was going through all of this and I felt all of these ways, I started diving into not just the research of it, but I started thinking, I was so ashamed of not having a perfectly clean house. But why am I ashamed? Who is the one who decided that's good? Who determines this good-bad binary? And I began figuring out a lot of the things that I felt were bad because I didn't perform well enough in these ADLs, these daily tasks. They were based off of social and cultural constructs, not based off of really what's truly and inherently bad as a human, as a person, as an individual. That also was very liberating. Like, oh, this is how my brain, I do better if there's a pile or a clutter where I can see everything and it looks disgusting to every, I mean, I don't have food here, but you know, like you have all of these papers and you have a pile of your notebooks. And if someone else were to see it, it wouldn't be clean. You're messy. You're whatever. But that's because that's what they were told or that's what they believe. But this is best for me and my brain for me to go around. So why am I trying to break myself where if I keep this spotless, I'm never going to know where this really important document is that I'm going to need in probably four weeks <laughs> if it doesn't stay in this pile. So I, I really started going down a rabbit hole of thinking of all the things that were bad about me, but they were really only bad because someone else said so, not because that was the reality of me as a person, as an individual. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. And I think it's definitely exacerbated by social media that we we get to see what other people are doing. We get to see people's offices. We see what people's homes look like. And, you know, we don't see the homes that are, unless you're on an ADHD Facebook group. So then you get to see people <laughs> like, and you're like, yes, okay, I feel a bit better now. But that level of comparison that is what feeds this, all this anxiety and the feeds the, the good and the bad conditioning, where if maybe if, if social media didn't exist in that capacity, it would be better. But I actually want to come onto the social media side because you've got an amazing account and you've got um, so many followers and I'd asked you just before I said how long did it take and you're like less than a year so you have managed to curate um you know a, a large social media following because you are putting content out there that is highly relatable not only is it relatable it's um helpful 
you know, and people are are feeling that you are giving giving them something it's not clean and it's not all like perfectly all the boxes aren't all like color coordinated and that's what I love about it is that you're just you're living your life and you're putting out the stuff on there and and it's helpful so can you tell people how they can find you what you've got planned is there anything exciting they need to know about sure you can find me at the neurodivergent nurse on instagram i also have a facebook group it's private so it's a little bit harder to find because some people don't want their friends on facebook to see that they're part of a group that focuses on adhd and neurodivergency if you cannot find it you are more than welcome to send me a message on instagram you can email me at the neurodivergent nurse at gmail.com i also do a little bit of stuff on tiktok occasionally um, that one's kind of slow it's not as much fun as instagram and of course the podcast you can find that anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast whatever platform is the neurodivergent nurse on that as well and hopefully in the only big upcoming thing knock on wood that, you know, this COVID stuff calms down just a little bit here in the States. But in September, we are doing a second annual nurses podcon. So people can, um, they can tune into that live. They can either do it virtually or they can go in person. I'm not sure where the location is going to be. Everybody's been voting for the last two months. It's either going to be in Las Vegas Nevada, Austin, Texas, or Nashville, Tennessee again. So if you're in the States and in September, you want to come and hang out, do a meet and greet and listen to some live podcasts with really funny and fun people, then be sure to check that out. There's a website for that too, nursespodcon.com. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'll make sure we get all that in the show notes. And Jamie, it was lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. So that's today's episode done. Did what we talk about resonate with you? I really hope you found some takeaways that may inspire you to make some small changes that enhance your daily life. And if you did find this episode insightful, please do consider sharing it. Knowledge and awareness is power, especially with ADHD. You can also head over to the show's Instagram page, which is ADHD Women's Wellbeing Pod, and join the community that's waiting for you there. And if this episode really did strike a chord, please do consider leaving us a review to enable more people who need to hear these conversations find the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and see you next time.